0: They are trying what everybody else has tried before and running playbooks. I think the, every time there's a new marketing channel, it works better than the other ones, right? Like LinkedIn polls work well now. They will not work well in the future, right? Uh, community is great. But like I think a lot of people are just running the same playbook they've heard rather than really like thinking it through and pushing the boundaries. Yeah, that and... uh, You're uh, listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And
1: I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No
0: BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe.
1: The one request we tell our guests...
0: Stories or...
1: Didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fan. Prepare to turn the f- up. This episode is sponsored by Rebby, the Marketing Analytics platform that gives you answers instead of more data. If you're looking at boosting conversions and understanding where you're going wrong, then you have to check out a Ruby. No more wasting time on Google Analytics by looking through irrelevant data. Now you can get to the crux of your tracking and measuring efforts in just a few simple clicks. So how does it work? After you connect Aribi to your or your client's site, everything is tracked and analyzed automatically. That means whenever you launch a new campaign, landing page, promotion, or piece of content, you don't need to worry about those annoying tracking codes. You'll immediately have all the data you need in a user-friendly dashboard. Also, Aribi lets you create conversion funnels in just a few seconds. And you get to see how your visitors behave through these flows on your site. They also have cool integrations with platforms like Facebook, HubSpot, Mailchimp, so make sure you check them out. They have a 7-day free trial and the marketing millennials listeners get 20% off all plans with the promo code TMM20. That's T as in the Amazon marketing Amazon millennials 20. Or you can go to aribi.io backslash TMM, that's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O backslash TMM, or use the link in the show notes below to claim this amazing discount.
2: Hey, Andy, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Thanks,
0: Daniel. Good to see you again.
2: I wanted to just kick it off to for the audience just to explain how did you get into RevOps, marketing operations, um, and then we could chat a little bit about like how did you come up with this idea of gated?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I had kind of two formative experiences that that kind of pushed me into RevOps. First one was I was at Upwork running the, the business development function, and the CEO said, Hey, can you figure out like how do we send a larger email blast to a bunch of different people? So I ended up working with a consultant really geeking out on the power of Salesforce, Pardot at the time, and a bunch of those other tools. I think I ended up sending a blast to 800,000 IT professionals and put us in spam hell. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I got real familiar with it fast. And then a couple of years later, I was at Box running all post-sale operations. And the CEO said, Hey, I hear you're good. We just lost our kind of marketing ops. Can you uh, Can you run marketing ops as well too? So I led... Uh, the marketing ops team through the transition from uh, eloqua to marketo and uh, really got deep into a lot of the lead scoring and the routing and a lot of those questions and i just learned that like i was good at how data and numbers ticked and then i guess i'd say finally at culture amp we were growing and i'd been running RevOps and i stuck my hand up to also take on demand gen as well too so for about a year and change i uh, took on and helped to run uh, the demand gen function as well at uh, culture amp so got in it pretty deep. Um, so that's the story of how I got into the, to rev go to market strategy and all that. And then three years ago, I was just overloaded as a buyer, you know, running RevOps and marketing. I was overloaded as a buyer. People were hitting me up with emails all the time. So I just hacked together something for fun. I put my Venmo link and I said, Hey, I don't know you. I'm not going to get your email. If you want to pay for my nonprofit, here's my Venmo link, pay a buck. And I guarantee I'll read it. And a lot of people started doing that. So that was the genesis of Gated. Uh, We've now turned into a company and our vision is to be able to kind of like change the incentives around email to make it better for both users um, or buyers and also senders. So that's a little bit long-winded story, but that's how I got here.
2: Yeah, I think that's awesome. I think like the idea that email shouldn't be this free channel where, and I know like as a marketer, it's hard to say, but like as a marketer, like you want to get in the inbox of people who will actually read your email, like not spam everybody, but having a, a paid option to do that sounds more enticing than sending out a hundred thousand emails and 1% open it and then 10%, like whatever, click through it. and. So what are your thoughts of like, how did you think about like this paid email? I know mm-hmm. was, you put the Venmo, but now that you've been doing it longer, what is your thoughts on having emails a paid channel?
0: Yeah, I think it works. Um, so there was a guy who's actually an investor in outreach. And he said to me early on, he said, this needs to work for both sides, right? Like if you just lock down the inbox, you're not going to be able to change the world. So we've found that for our users, we can take off between 20 and 40% typically of of email, all the unwanted stuff, the stuff they don't know and replace it with a couple promoted, donated emails on the flip side for senders, like the reply rates are terrible right now, right? Like, and and they're declining all the time. And I think the stats that I've been able to get from folks in the industry are around 2% reply rate for a cold outbound email. And I'm talking more SDR than marketing, but, that the numbers work the same. If somebody donates a buck or two via gated, that goes up to about fifty percent reply rate. So you can imagine a world today, which is send a hundred emails, get two replies. The world we see is send ten emails, get five replies. We think that's better for everybody, um, and we've actually sat down and with some marketers done done the math. And if you can boost the reply rates by that much. A couple bucks here and there totally makes sense. So um we truly believe, and I've spent my whole career on go to market strategies that we can <laughs> by getting rid of the noise and the irrelevance and the the emails that are just like just not valuable or not even remotely relevant, um we can make email better for everybody,
2: yeah. I think the biggest thing also is like we're moving into a era where, people are used to like now like block out the noise of all these emails like you did as a buyer but also the next thing is like people want people to like show like well answer to people who show that they care show that they put time in show that they did their research and I think what your email strategy does I mean your email, your product is for, gonna force marketers to be more thoughtful on who they reach out like the classic, ABM or like classic, like figure out your actual target audience, not like throw a net and then have someone come in. So I think like it's super interesting for the for a marketer because it forces like a new behavior for marketers to to be more thoughtful of who they reach out to, how to personalize an email now that you're going to get this, like this owner of a business to reply, like it needs to be like good copy, good thoughtful copy. What have you heard from like people like who have, I saw that post on LinkedIn the other day from Sarah from Gong yeah. and why she loved it. But what are your thoughts on this like era of like more like personalized reach out that are actually taking the time to get to know the buyer at the end of the,
0: the email? I mean, first off the reactions, we spent a lot of time and, um, you know, some folks at, uh, outreach and groove have been really helpful, you know, like we're out to make sure this works for buyers. Like I, I if it doesn't, it, it doesn't work for anybody, I'm sorry for sellers. And so we've seen really, really positive reactions. You know, oftentimes the first reaction is like, Ooh, this is weird. You're doing something different. I guess I would argue there's so many different thing. There's so many things that felt weird and awkward. Uh, when you started them, right? Like getting in a car with a stranger used to feel weird. Now there's Uber. Staying on someone's couch used to feel weird. Now there's Airbnb. There's so many things where, like, we are doing something that, like, initially makes people feel uncomfortable. But once people understand it, they're like, God, did you charged me. And they're like, but oh, wait a second. Like, <laughs> I'm sending a ton of emails today and I'm not, nobody's replying to me. I'm just shooting everything in the void. And so when people realize that, they have a really positive reaction. So there's a lot of the, Um, And you can see some of them on our website or on there of like, I hated it. And then I loved it. Right. I got one of those this morning as well, too, where the guy is like, (laughs) I both get angry at it, but I also see that this can change the world. And I think, so we've gotten really, really positive reactions on that. And then on the flip side, you know, it's your question of like, is it going to make content and the quality of emails better? And we believe it can force that.
2: That's awesome. One question I had for you and just people listening is like, how does like, a BDR and stuff like get like budget to be able to pay for this stuff because it's like that's like one of the concerns too. like for a set from the seller point of view like how do we get budget to be able to pay for I know it's a small amount but you don't want to use your own cash as a BDR.
0: Yeah, I think there's the, I think the the stages and we, I tend to, by the way, if you donate via Gated, you'll probably get a LinkedIn invite from me because we're, we're learning so fast from the feedback. But generally what I've seen is the first time people are like, whoa, this is interesting. I'll just try it out. You know, I'll see. And then people are like, wow, oh, this is interesting. And they start to do it more often. So I think there may be, you know, those first kind of test ones where people try it on their personal account, just like with anything else then they'll start to expense that. And uh, and then we'll start to work with senders to create accounts and create budgets. One of our investors and users and early advisors is Chris, the CEO of Sendoso. Um, you know, so they've done a really good job of like BDRs, SDRs, get Sendoso budgets to send swag and to send gifts to be able to do that. So that's a perfect like parallel in a lot of ways. Another great parallel, Daniel, is... Um, LinkedIn InMail. LinkedIn email has proven that people that don't know people they're targeting will pay to reach them. It's a multi-billion dollar business today, right? And SDRs have got that. Um, the first time you get it, you may have to explain it to your head of sales, but uh, we're starting to see domains that have donated you know, 10, 15, 20 times. And so as that starts to ramp and become more prevalent, um. Pretty sure people will give budgets. If somebody's uh, head of sales won't give them a budget, uh, have them ping me, and I'll uh, see if I know them in my network and help explain it to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's awesome. I think that um, having the ability as just a mark on the marketing side of the build, building is like reply rates are just the end all beyond metric. Like no rates don't really matter. Well, reply work like through rates. Like those are the two. Like Metrics people look good, but at the end of the day, you want a conversion. You want a real person at the end of the line. And it's, I'm like you. I mean, I get tons of email, tons of like LinkedIn messages, but even like the in-mail is like perfect example. Like if someone was willing to use an in-mail to reach out, I'm more likely to at least read their LinkedIn message and take time and consideration because they they wanted to try getting my inbox. than someone who connects with me and then spams me the first message because there's two ways I see it as like, this is kind of the shortcutting way of doing it. Like there's a, the other way is like build a relationship over time. And then you can email me, like build a relationship with me, like through like liking my posts and stuff like that. Even like the other side is research, but this is like kind of cut, cutting easier and saying like, okay, if you don't have time to do all that research and, Engage with me for months, like at least pay to play, like yeah. get into my inbox that way.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Mary Lou Tyler, um, who along with Aaron wrote predictable revenue, right? Like she she grew up in the direct mail industry. And when she saw Gated, she's like, wow, it's a postage stamp for email, right? And it's we we've loved that analogy um as well, too. And so, you know, I I remember reading uh Mary Lou and Aaron's book early on, and it shaped kind of an like early part of my career. And at the same time, a lot of those tactics have you know been overplayed and uh, so i think if you instead of sending out tons and tons of email if you narrow it down to focus more it's it's really interesting i've i've talked to some heads of marketing and sales that literally have like two teams right they have a team that's just all volume and another team that's quality and right now the incentives don't really support the quality and the and the personalized content but i think they can if we do our job right
1: yeah and
2: i think if you take a step back as a marketer or like someone like you yourself hate getting all the spam emails and stuff like that. So like, if you change the narrative of like, hey, be per- more personalized with your reach out, actually get to know the person, actually pay to play, actually be more thoughtful. And then if you pick like 10 people, at least BDRs have time to do research, to yeah. have a thoughtful reach out, Like, be like more concerned instead of like, okay, I'm blasting it to... 10,000 people. Let's hope that like 15 reply and then burn the rest of the, the that list that you built up.
0: I remember at culture amp, somebody ping me in and they're like, Hey, we're doing a blast to 500,000 HR professionals. Do you want in? Right. <laughs> I was like, God, that sounds like a terrible way to do things. And, uh, and I feel like you're, you're burning lists. You're burning your relationship. Um, it's the unfortunate thing is the incentives right now. Don't, reward, personalized, focused content. You know, if, if you if you can blast a list of 100,000 100, people, it costs the same as sending a much more personalized one to a 1,000. So I think we're hoping that we can <laughs> create the right incentives for everybody. Yeah,
2: I also think that, like, it's all the short-term incentives that people have been, marketers have been, ingrained for a while, like oh, you had to hit the revenue number. the easiest way is I have a list. let me send it out. but like there's also like the mixture of like, okay, in a year's time, like the hundred thousand people that you've burnt on your list, like do you think they're actually gonna come back because you've like spammed them for the last year or do you have you actually like thoughtfully like re- reached out to them for a while or gave them content or something like that to get them back? So I think the i get the the immediate cost is cheap. the long term cost is expensive of doing yeah. that.
0: yeah, one thing we started playing with at culture amp was we we did a lot of events. I'd say we probably did two hundred events a year, whether they were owned or otherwise. We stopped nurturing those from marketing automation um, with blast emails, but we started parsing them out to the sales team and letting them do much more personalized follow-up. And it worked a lot better, right? You're not burning your list and you're putting a little bit more into these people that have spent the time to attend your event and to either physically or virtually. Yeah,
2: I would love to know, like, if you can talk about but like, what are some like things you've learned from doing go-to-market strategy and all these different companies that you're bringing to Gated when you're like thinking about bringing Gated to market?
0: Biggest one I learned, at, and I really admired what had been done before me at Cultramp and how we built on it, was the value of brand. I'd say we were about 85% inbound at Cultramp, right? Like it was just, A, it's subtle, it's so, and, and I'd love to get your feedback on this, but like naming a company matters, right? I I advise a company called Spiff. You pretty much know what they do. They do commission software. Their competitors captivate IQ, right? That could be anything in the world, right? So we spent a lot of time thinking about. The gated brand, what it stands for, what it means, what the experience when you do that—like that stuff pays off over time. So that's definitely an area we were investing in. Um, viral um, is an area we're spending a lot of time, and then the you know, power of content are kind of like three core pillars of our go-to-market strategy. But you know, I'd say brand was was a really fun one to be able to supercharge, and you know, our head of marketing and I are are really passionate about like we're we're not just trying to help people with email. We're trying to build a brand that can change the way communication happens. So I haven't mentioned our, our manifesto yet, but on our website we've really got like what do we believe in and what's the change we're trying to drive in the world. I think those things are really important. Yeah, I like how you're thinking about
2: that, even though like I actually talked to Dave Gearhart about brand the other day and He was talking about like the mixture of brand and like revenue. And he was saying like, obviously the main focus is to drive revenue. Otherwise your company can't survive. But like, like every quarter or year you have brand focuses, whether it's like, I'm going to launch a podcast, I'm going to launch this and then have metrics that tie to that, whether it's like, oh, I'm going to have. 10,000 listens per episode by end of the year, whatever, whatever, and then have like a brand thing that you're doing every single quarter or like year that's tied to brand because it's hard to balance the two. Like obviously people want to build brand, but then there's the revenue part of it. That's like, okay, you have to hit that number. You have to hit that number. You have to hit that number. So what are you thinking about? Like how do you think about like balancing those two when you're starting out?
0: A couple of advantages we may have, Daniel, that and allow us to focus on the brand is we're not selling vertical B2B SaaS, right? Like there are 10,000 plus tools and it's a crowded space, right? It's hard to build a brand within that. And sometimes it may make more sense to focus on demand. And we're building what we believe is kind of like a B2C brand that then we build a B2B business on top of. And so I think that's, you know, the, there's no one else that's doing what we're doing yet. I'm sure maybe somebody will, will, will try it and figure it out at some point. But I think that when you have those white spaces, I think there's a real opportunity to build a brand. I think we look at this thing as we're literally giving gated away free to people, it costs nothing. And so this is not a, we're not trying to acquire people with an ACV of 20K or, or a lot of that. And so I think brand, I always say, when I've interviewed demand gen people, if they're like, "This is the playbook I ran last time. I'm running it again." That's a bad hire. What I think people need to know within marketing is every company is different, and if you try to apply the same playbook to everybody, you're going to fail. And if you don't have that maturity, it's going to be super painful, right? So there's definitely things that like work for us at Culture Amp that I'm not bringing over. Happy to touch on some of those as well too. But I think for us, brand, given our strategy of viral. Organic, the power of the message, um, how just amazingly simple it is to understand works really well for us.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the old school sent from iPhone, like Apple did, where they just put like literally like all phones had that sent from iPhone. Yeah. Like it's kind of like someone gets this email from gated and then they're like, oh, what the heck is gated? And they figure out that way from like, the reply that happened. So it's kind of like that kind of same approach of like, also I think Hotmail kind of the same thing when they had at the, at the bottom of the email as well, like says that caused like the, the hyper growth of the product at the beginning of it.
0: Yeah. There are levers that we have not yet turned on um, that we, we see a lot of that. And so then a lot of it is like, what's the experience people have from doing it? Because for us, every time you get a gated challenge, you may be like, the first time you get is it, like, what is this? This is new, this is different. But if people, if you've experienced that once or twice, you've got a good feeling like the conversion rates go up, right? So there's an incredible ROI to brand for us that there may not be for like a classic B2B SaaS company. At the same time, I think what Dave does is brilliant and uh, everything he writes around brand is has been really inspiring for us.
2: Yeah, I think what also you have is like creating a new category that doesn't exist, right? Like where like email has always been a product for the sender, and never a product for the buyer. Um, so it's like a, a whole new category that you're creating, which is when you can't compete in like a crowded space, you go create your own space, basically, and then compete there. And that's kind of what you guys are doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's that you know, like a friend of mine, Anthony Canada, wrote the great book on category creation. I I spend less time thinking about category creation and more time thinking about brand um, creation i don't know how you think between the two of those but that's like we're we're not really trying to find like what Gartner quadrant are we in and things like that but uh maybe because we're not selling to b2b buyers yet for me i think category creation is
2: a just a subset of part of what you're gonna do as a brand strategy i think it's not like branded in general it's like the 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 strategy and if you wanted to go down that route of saying that like they kind of what salesforce was the first one to be like uh with the no software the no, the whatever they did at the beginning and then drifted the no forms kind of just like the the same thing like no free emails or something like that where it's like a whole new category that you haven't created but that's like part what they did part of brand like it didn't happen because like they didn't like think about, oh, we're going to go create a new category. They said, this is part of my brand. And then from brand, they created a new category.
0: I, I couldn't agree. The Salesforce was probably one of the examples that inspired me to, to suggest the concept of Manifesto. I think for us also, we look at it right now with our initial product, like 20% of B2B users that are pummeled by email can use it. Marketing and, uh, and revenue ops and CEOs are kind of our sweet spot personas over time. We will open it up for other folks, but everyone we talk to it immediately gets what we're doing, right? Like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like you don't use it yet, but you got it in seconds, right? And so what we want is part of the, the vision around the brand and the manifesto is we want everyone, just not the people that are using it today to be able to like believe and support in what we're doing. So I think that, that makes the brand much bigger than the usage footprint today.
2: I would love to think go back to that comment you made earlier of like what you're doing differently that you've done at cultureamp that you, you take it, you're not going to
0: do it. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, I say the biggest one there is community. And I've got a good article on my LinkedIn around, you know, when you should do a community and when you shouldn't do a community. Um, and was actually just done with a really smart guy um, around community today. I, at Coltramp, we had, you know, 7,000 people in a Slack channel we have we were running like bevy with events. We were we were really engaging people in a dialogue. I don't think right, right now this is a small dialogue for people of like great, you've made me more productive. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on to my day job. So we've consciously not like invested in the community. There's definitely like some long-term plays on community, but short-term, um, it's been one of those things that like was probably one of our three or four engines for growth at CultRamp, but that we're not investing in here.
2: Yeah, I think I mean. I'm a big proponent of community, but there's also a big also proponent of like focus, like where you need to focus at the beginning. But I think it would be cool eventually to have like a community of your target audience or whatever. And then like the entry cost is like donating to something, like kind of what the gated product would be, but for your community. Um, And then you build a community that way of like top marketing ops people or top revenue people that are talking about they're just talking about like their day job instead of talking about your product but you created this like safe space for them to be better at their jobs so that's like an interesting thing for the future but I think like that would be but yeah I totally think like no strat like what you said at the beginning no strategy like there's no copy and paste strategy for every company like you have to do a strategy that works for you at the beginning, and community takes time and it's hard. So if you don't have the bandwidth to do it, you have to do it right. If you do
0: community, I couldn't agree. That was like a big aha for me, right? Like as you get more mature in career, you start to realize it's not about templating. I think things like revenue ops to a large degree can be templated, and you get better every time. But I think marketing is, to me, as much an art as as it is a science.
2: Yeah, and I think also like template you could templatize some things but like even in like marketing ops like the way systems and data has changed in the last like few years on how think like data like people think about data and how much data and how many new systems in it like there's no playbook to teach you like how to deal with 10,000 marketing softwares out there that don't like, and how to connect Things to softwares and like there's no playbook out there, so you kind of like learning on the fly as you do marketing operations. The same <laughs> as marketing, um, rev in general of like the engine of like how do we create what type of like reports do we need? Like what is like the base? Like the how do we create the journey? All that stuff like could be systematized, but there's so many other things that like you have to think. Which I think is a, a thing of RevOps in general. Like RevOps' job is to think like two to three to four years down the road. Like, how can we scale? So, like, sometimes that's, there's no playbook for like three to four years down the road. There's only like prior playbooks that people have ran. So.
0: I totally agree. Yeah. RevOps job is like, yeah, you want this now, but if you thought about this, this over exactly. here and the implications, uh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. I would love to know how. Just for the like the the audience, like what are like some key things you looked at as a head of wrap ops? Like, I know the conversation's kind of moved a little bit, but like what are some things that you you looked at as a wrap ops person when you were like doing go to market and supporting these different orgs?
0: You touched on, um, so first off, I'd say like on my LinkedIn, I actually wrote a six-part RevOps handbook. When I was wrapping up at ramp I said, let me give this back to the world of like, how would I do RevOps? Um, and so a lot of my thoughts are there, but maybe I can touch on one specifically, which is, and you talked about it, was data is changing RevOps, right? It's no longer siloed data and go-to-market systems. The best people are starting to use data warehouses data becomes a core skill set with RevOps. it shouldn't be divorced from it and i think we did a really good job at culture am of uh, building out a scalable data infrastructure that could deliver insights and uh, enable better actions so i think that's where it used to just be piping here to here and i can yeah you need something let me pull it out of a salesforce report now you want to be able to look at like Salesforce with product data, with attribution data, and you want to be able to look at all together. or You want to look at it over there's certain ways that just like say go to market systems can't report very well. Um, so I think data is a big inflection point for me.
2: Yeah. And I think also what you said too is like a lot of these tools were built in like a silo of like what the for one function, but like a lot of like systems have to be multi-function and a lot of data is multi-function meaning like you gotta be there for marketing rev sales product like it can't just be like oh we're this for marketing only and that's all we use it for like systems has a talk throughout the whole revenue function not just like one part of the revenue function
0: yeah i got one my favorite example of all is like pipeline build, right like in salesforce you cannot it's very difficult to see pipeline at a point in time prior to the current point in time, right? So what was pipeline two months ago or three months ago? But like that's where sales and marketing meet is how much pipeline did you create? How much pipeline coverage did we have? How are you closing that? And so a lot of the ability to look at those things on like a different time series, is just not possible in existing go-to-market systems.
2: Yeah, I think that you said it well. Like you have to have that data warehouse to pipe data in and stuff like that. I wonder, like, how building a an operations function from like ground zero, what you're doing right now. Like, how are you thinking about it? That you're building it from literally like nothing right now. Like, how are you thinking about building it? That that you probably didn't think about, like, but like a culture amp, like you you kind of you did build it up, but you inherit didn't start from like employee number two
0: yeah i mean i was the first i was the first RevOps hire at culture oh, that's Rampe. awesome i went from running a team of you know across two functions at, at box to an individual contributor for <laughs> a couple months until I, I made my first hire and i kind of like getting my hands dirty so um i'd say at, at gated we're not building a traditional RevOps function because we're much more of like a b2c plg led um at culture amp it was very much of like roll up my sleeves, dive deep in there. So happy to, if you want to go down that one, I'm happy to talk about the, you know, kind of the learnings and the insights of building the function from scratch at app. What are some
2: things that are you like building an operation function that are different from like B2B to B2C? What are like some like things that are like inherently out? Cause there's like, now you're like, customers are not like this big organization. They're like, contacts basically now, like multiple contacts. And you're going to have to get a, acquire, a B2C is acquiring a lot of people. It's not like acquiring like small amounts of companies that come in.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's simplest, like we're not building a CRM and a Salesforce. And once we finish up our, our new onboarding flow, like marketing automation is virtually irrelevant. Everything's part of the product itself. So I think you use a lot of the same data and funnels. Approach and so the math is the same, but the systems are very different.
2: Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. I think it's also like, which I think should be adopted more in B two B is like, like thinking about the buyer journey more and how easy and less friction there is in the buyer journey, which I think a lot of B two B companies aren't good at. That it's like if you see classic B two B companies, it's like the same like oh request a demo get an SDR to hit you up have to have an hour call with an SDR before i can even talk to a sales rep and then get price on the call and it doesn't fit my budget or something it's like this whole long journey where if a lot of companies just thought of the b2c funnel of like how quick how easy they get price up front they get the, the the process is easy they can they could do all their research by themselves like that should be what b2b should be and a lot of companies don't think like that
0: and then i'm literally going through one of those today with a uh, recruiting software technology where i still don't have pricing and it's like the fifth email i'm not going to get on a call if i don't have pricing i it's a fun rant um total tangent but there's companies like vendor and ramp and xylo um, i think that are like starting to make like Build databases of pricing. And at CultRamp, we published our pricing online. We were very transparent where there was no discounting. I feel like with the way information flows, like very soon. I can't believe it makes sense for people to, to put people through that ringer versus just publish your pricing online and, and be comfortable with it and stop the crazy discounting approach and, and just make it easier for people to buy. Yeah. And I feel like,
2: I mean, it's just, we're in an age of transparency and I think if they're not going to get pricing from you. They easily can go get pricing from their, the buddy (laughs) down the road. Like, like I, if I can't get pricing from your software, I can call up a friend who uses your software and go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You go into any community out there and you just ask five people, what do you pay for this? And you're done. Exactly. So it's
2: like, (laughs) might as well just say it up front because like I can go find that. And honestly, even if I don't want the software that much, I'm not going to go even luck anymore. So that's like the other side of it. Like if you don't have a strong, which we going back to what we talked about before, if you don't have a strong enough brand in the industry and you're not like the best in class or like known as like the, the, the best software, it's going to be hard for you to, for me to just justify getting on calls like with no pricing or anything like that because I know my budget up front, like, and I know there's wiggle room or not. So like, I'm not going to get on if I don't, it's the same thing about the the other side of it. It was like being a candidate in the market. Like, Oh, I I have to get on these calls. And then you tell me like what the offer is. And like the offer is not close to where my thought of salary was, but I spent all this time with your company to do it.
0: It's an interesting one being on the other side that I might, uh, try to debate that a of bit i think the markets are changing so fast you know like salaries are going up sometimes you don't know what level of role you're hiring for or you'd be open to multiple different levels or like uh different and different things and i've seen candidate you know, like if you publish a range which is so broad it almost like confuses things or it sets the wrong things. Yeah, so it's like,
2: not, not more publishing but i think like being transparent on like okay here's here's what i think i can be as a candidate like on the first call like this is where i'm going to be like where i want to be as a candidate like can you do that or not like tell me i
0: think that's i think that's a valid conversation to have yeah and it's also like if you spent 20 minutes with a candidate you should know kind of what level of seniority they're at and uh and what their capabilities are, and then you can you can understand that. No, I think those things. I definitely wanted situations where I've been thinking like, oh, ah, yeah, I only need this level, but like I've met somebody who's more senior, and you change your ranges in the process as well, too. So yeah,
2: that's the that's the thing. I think like there's flexibility, but like if someone comes in and says, "I ain't, it's just arbitrary number," like I want hundred k, and you know, like there's no like I'm going to offer seventy k at the end and there's no wiggle room for that like and you make a candidate go through the whole cycle it's kind of yeah. a, a messed up thing but there is if you know inherently like this is a great candidate and you could fight for them then it's like all right to do that but i think but i just see a lot of just i'm just going on the other side which is a different topic but like <laughs> a lot of people just as a candidate and like as a buyer like there needs to be like transparency up front whether it's like the first call with an SDR like you say because that's also the problem with SDR is they never get pricing like the same thing as like recruiters like recruiters should know what like, is there wiggle room? Is there not wiggle room? Can they get something? Is this a higher? Is there? Is are they open to other candidates or not? Like, like there should be some transparency in there so that you don't get screwed as a candidate. Um, Couldn't,
0: agree. Couldn't agree more on that one. Yeah. It's uh, maybe we can create lots of transparency uh, <laughs> in, in every piece of it, right? Uh, information should be, uh, should flow to the right places.
2: So, I also want to just go back to like how you thought, because I know we've had this conversation before, but like, how did you think about the charity option for gated versus like, because we talked about like if email costs one cent, what would be the, the implications versus like $1 versus like whatever? Like, how did you think, why charity and why do you think that that's the best option?
0: Ah, uh, Okay, yeah. Uh, so, I'll take the the price one first. Actually, I think they kind of they kind of both work together. So I started out testing a nickel. Then I test a dime. Then I test a quarter. We're now up to defaulting people into two bucks. The average price that we collect is closer to four. Um, is forty percent of people donate more than the minimum that's asked by the user, right? So we let the user set their own price. We think that's really important. Like. LinkedIn does not. Everybody costs the same for an in-mail with LinkedIn. And so what you end up with is super senior people getting flooded and just kind of starting to punt on LinkedIn completely. So we are very firm on like letting the user pick their own price. Um, and so we've had users come in and say, hey, what should I start? We're like, start at a buck. And they get 12 donations in the first week. We're like, "Yep, yeah, you better increase your price, right? So um, we're very much believing in like the price is right for the person. I think then there's the question of like, there's three things that you could be selling. You could be selling time, you know, like two hundred bucks an hour for meeting. That doesn't work um, generally because the demand side doesn't work. Or you could be selling like the marginal cost to send an email. Um, we're not really charging to send the email. We're later in the funnel, and so it's a higher price point. So that's maybe a lot of the thought process on the pricing. But frankly, like. We're, we're learning and it's increasingly driven by data and and supply and demand. So that explains kind of why we're, we're, where we're at, but we've got users experimenting from anywhere from a buck to $7 minimum donation right now, the nonprofit. I realize what people really value here is the pro on the user side is the productivity and a lot of like, there's a danger that in this world, like, people could look at it and say, hey, like bribery or like, I don't want to take the money. It's going to influence me. I was, I was talking to a bunch of CEOs and I was actually at lunch with one and we were talking. He's like, yeah, I don't want the money. I just, you know, I want to make email better and both for the world and for myself. And I want to, I believe in what you're doing, but like, I don't need want the money and it kind of creates a little bit of an discomfort for me. And so I was like, well, what about your charity? And he's like, oh, that'd be great, right? So we did that. Um, the other reason we did nonprofits is I worked at Upwork. Um, There was a lot of problems with money laundering and knowing your customer and people paying themselves and doing all that. And so, for the time being, we've made the conscious decision that for two reasons. One is we want the money to go to a good place. And two is we don't want to have people just try to hack the system and turn it into a way to (laughs) to money launder and cheat out of it. So, um, for the foreseeable future, we are focused exclusively on nonprofits. Uh, We have had some people be like, man, could I? Fund my Friday team happy hour, and so we think about things like that. And um you know, where the the system can definitely support individual payments, right? Like maybe there's some YouTube star in LA that wants to make money themselves, and then we could we can talk about that. But um we think it works really well as it works today.
2: Yeah, I mean, I also I just know on like the gifting side of things, I like I know some companies have like company policies around that, like yeah, on like whether you could take a gift or not and like what's what you can do for that so it's like also like kind of awkward in that part of it like do i take that like should i give it some to my team or not like there's also a bunch of company policies around like that type of stuff so that's why it's also like kind of like gift cards are great but it's also Like that's why like events and stuff like that, where people do like events or like you're invited to this or something like that where it's like not directly in their pocket, it's a little better sometimes because sometimes you can't take things as a as a person, especially like cash, like as a a manager or something like that at a company.
0: Yeah, yeah. The uh I think giving to your nonprofit really resonates with people. So we think the, the value right now we see is like 95% productivity and 5% nonprofit. It becomes more powerful as we get bigger and we get millions of users where it's like Amazon Smile never tells you, you donated X to this charity. They more say like, hey, you and all of the other people in the world raised this much for this nonprofit. So um, we think that, uh, that those monies are, are more important as they become at bigger and bigger scales. Yep, that's awesome. The last
2: question I like to ask people and it's actually kind of I think it fits perfectly with your cuz I think I know what your answer is going to be, but like <laughs> what are what are most marketers doing wrong today?
0: They are trying what everybody else has tried before and running playbooks. I think the every time there's a new marketing channel it works better than the other ones, right? Like LinkedIn polls work well now. They will not work well in the future, right? Uh, Community is great. But like, I think a lot of people are just running the same playbook they've heard rather than really like thinking it through and pushing the boundaries. Yeah, that and uh, they're also sending way too many low quality emails. And uh, (laughs) both of those I would say for sure.
2: Yeah, I knew the low quality email one was going to be one of them. Oh yeah, give me a layup there for sure. Yeah, but uh, the other one I think is so true about... One of, someone told me about it for like social media strategy in general. Someone always told me like if a company is investing in a new feature, social media, you should double down on that feature because they're going to put attention to that feature. So like like polls are pro, not newest, but it is. It's working because they want people to want it to work, like that's why it's a thing. Like, they wouldn't push it in their algorithm if it didn't work. Um,
0: I, I mean, I it's amazing how many people are like, Well, I'm running LinkedIn ads where it's like sit on, like LinkedIn's rolling out new features all the time. I would just sit on every single one of those, like you're saying, right? Like, um, yeah. or it, but those are maybe the easy layups, but like, you know, it's like the advisor strategy that Sendosa's run is brilliant, right? And, um, but <laughs> then now there are companies that are kind of doing it in a really cheapy and not that great way and they're kind of running the playbook but like if you're going to take somebody's playbook run it better than they ran it and don't run it crappier than they ran it right <laughs> like innovate on it try to do that yeah i always
2: say don't reinvent the wheel innovate on the wheel that really exists like the wheel hasn't changed for a while but it- they've innovated since like the first wheel, like they didn't just keep the same way we give it, if it. If someone, if we didn't, if people didn't innovate on the wheel, we would still have like, like the wooden wheel from back in the day. Like we would not have the one wheels we have now on cars and stuff like that. Like Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's like every time make it better, do it better, push the envelope. And I, I think the other thing I see that marketers see. And we kind of suffered from this, like you know. I we I've seen a lot of amazing marketing organizations with two, three, four people, um, right? Like marketing is one of those like multi-matrixed. Too many people, org structures are complicated, and everyone's tripping over each other. And so, like lean, mean, and the ability to execute is something I've been really impressed with with uh, a number of companies as well lately.
2: Yeah, that's that, that's a that's a great point. I think also someone. Dave King from Asana was like, oh, you can't like, like it's the markings that one of the only orgs where you can't like copy paste like positions, like kind of like sales. You can have a like that you have, you can get a bunch of BDRs and you know their promotion path that it's going to go like this. You're going to have a bunch of sales, but like you can't hire 20 graphic designers on your team. You can't hire like 20 marketing automation be- operations people. Like it's like, very hyper specialized like function that you can't just copy and paste like a rollover and there's a different growth path for that person there's a different scalability for that person like it's way different which is like most roles out there like are very like you know like oh You're going to become a BDR and then you're going to be like a senior BDR and then BDR moves into AE and then you become a senior AE, then you could become a manager or eventually a director of sales and VP of sales, but then like, you know, the growth path there, like it's very long, linear in marketing, like it's different growth path.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like marketing is no fun if you're just running a playbook. But if you keep innovating and trying new things, we're we're having a blast with what we're doing on the marketing side right now.
2: Cool. Well, I want to give you the last like minute or so to just talk about like anything you want to talk about, anything you want to tell the audience that this is your time.
0: Ah, <sighs> that's a great one. I would say we truly believe the world has too much noise in it. This is just, we are overloaded with notifications. We're overloaded with all these. Um, uh emails, communications. Uh I think it's hard to like step back and appreciate the world and have perspective and do that. And you know, that's our mission. I'd say we just uh, we'd love anyone that believes in the vision and what's on our manifesto to uh to connect with us. We love we're at this early stage where we get to chat with really cool people that are that are doing neat things and uh we're we're pushing the bounds. So come along for the ride.
2: Cool where can they where can people reach you?
0: Gated.com. we bought the domain a couple months ago from great story there and uh we are out there to uh change the world we're starting with email but uh we think this problem exists much broader than email awesome well thanks so much
2: andy for joining the podcast it's been great and always appreciate our talks
0: do you you know you know ops and marketing ops better than anyone i know so thanks for taking the time great conversation thank you